Scripture today comes from the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 1 to 6. First of all, then, I urge that supplications and prayers, intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. This is God's word for us today. Lord, I ask for your blessing now on this preaching of your word. I'm quite amazed that you're so faithful to feed us week after week after week after week. We're like little children. Uh, we can't even get breakfast for ourselves. We, we need you to feed us. So do that again today, we pray. In your name, amen. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, for the last a few weeks, we've been in a series of sermons called Sunday Matters, and we've been asking questions like, why in the world is the weekly gathering of the people of God so important? And furthermore, if it's important, what in the world are we supposed to be doing in this room when we gather week after week? Well, you could summarize the, the Bible's collective answer to those questions, I think, by saying we gather for this reason, church. We gather to glorify God and edify one another by remembering and responding to the gospel. That's what Sunday morning is all about. Glorifying God, edifying one another by remembering and responding to the gospel. And, and there are a host of ways we do that, right? So, so God is glorified and people are edified. When you greet someone here you haven't met before and courageously engage them in conversation, even though you're going into that conversation thinking, I don't have a clue what I'm going to say one minute from now. God is glorified and people are edified when you spend half the morning in the HVAC closet because you're troubleshooting a computer issue so we can be comfortable in here when it's freezing out there. I could give a lot more examples, but, but among all those activities and, and countless more, the Lord has established some clear priorities for us. What I'll call public means of grace for all peoples and all places at all times. So when we turn to the Lord's authoritative word and ask a question like, Lord, what do you want us to do? Imagine that, starting with what God says. <laughs> When we gather on Sunday morning, he says things back to us like, I want you to preach the word. I want you to sing the word. Or I want you to pray the word. And, and we're going to camp out on that last one this morning, pray the word. But before I do that, it's, it's worth pausing and recognizing that all of that means that what we do together on Sunday morning isn't about what works. You ever think about that? It's not about what draws the biggest crowd. You're welcome. <laughs> it's not about what will connect with millennials or, or give us a, a perceived spiritual recharge for another week. I, I'm not a cheerleader to psych you up again. What we do when we gather, friends, must start with what God says we need to do when we gather. That's our starting point. Because he's not a God of our own making. Whom we get to worship in whatever way we feel like worshiping. In that scenario, who's really God? We are. Right? He's not a God of our own making. He's our Savior King who, as David Peterson so wisely observed, must be worshiped in the way that he proposes. And in the way he alone makes possible. 
And prayer is no exception to that, right? So when we pray the word, when we begin our meetings by, by extolling God's excellencies and prayers of praise, we're doing what God's commanded us to do. When we pray the word by responding to the gift of conviction with a prayer of confession, as, as Priya did with us this morning, we're doing what God's told us to do. And when we pray the word by, by responding to the assurance of God's mercy toward us in Christ, by praying prayers of intercession and thanksgiving, we're, we're doing what God tells us to do. And it's that last kind of prayer, intercession and thanksgiving, that I want us to, to focus on today because that's the focus of Paul's instruction to a young man, church leader named Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 6. Prayers of intercession, thanksgiving. What's up with that? Well, if you're not familiar with 1 Timothy, in in chapter 1, the Apostle Paul charges Timothy to do something, to to uphold and protect the truth of the gospel in a church in a place called Ephesus because all kinds of false teachers were saying, yeah, yeah, that's not true. This is true. And so he says in verse 15 of chapter 1, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, Timothy, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. What's he redirecting Timothy's eyes back to as a pastor? The truth of the gospel. Stick with that, bud. Don't move on from that. And then in chapters 2 to 6, Paul transitions to, to explaining you want to read the rest of this book this week, the the kind of corporate life that is consistent with that gospel truth. As I've said before, the gospel isn't just a historical data set of facts. It makes a claim on our life, grabs you by the shirt and says, live this way, not that way. 1 Timothy 3.14, I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, Paul says, you may know how one ought to behave In the household of God, which is the church. So how about qualifications for church officers? Check. How about how to steward financial resources around here? Check. How about age and gender specific exhortations? Check. So Paul Paul addresses these issues and many more in this letter to Timothy, but we do well to pay attention to where he starts, friends. And I want you to feel the force of this, okay? What, what implication of the gospel, of all he's going to talk about in this letter, is the leadoff hitter in 1 Timothy? What's up first? In light of what, as Paul says in chapter 1, verse 17, the the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God has done through Christ. How do we respond to that? Look at chapter 2, verse 1. First of all, then, first of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. In other words, Paul says, Timothy, let's get started, and we're going to get started with prayer. You want to talk about implications of the gospel? How how does all the king of ages has done in Jesus Christ to work salvation for mankind, how does that grab you and say, live this way? Let's start with what we're praying for, buddy. Why? Because the pleasure of God, friends, in working salvation for all people compels us to pray for all people. That's the point. The pleasure of God In working salvation for all people, it pushes us, it compels us to pray for all people. It's really simple. And that means that prayer, especially on Sunday morning, isn't a transition device. (laughs) Okay? Hmm. I wonder how we could get the band off stage or on stage without anybody actually noticing what's going on. So like they open their eyes and, oh, the band's there. No, it's not a transition device. It's, it's not a way to sort of emotionally bridge from, you know, singing right into a sermon could be kind of jolting. So I know, Let, let's just have a nice little prayer. It doesn't really matter what you say. Just pray something nice and breathy and, and that'll work. Sadly, prayer is often treated and used like that in the church, right? 
but it's not a transition device. It's, it's one of the highest priorities in corporate worship. And if we're going to understand why and what Paul's teaching us here about our corporate practice of prayers of intercession in particular, let's just ask a couple of very simple questions of the passage. Okay? This is how we're going to work through this. First, for whom should we pray? Simple enough. Second, what should we pray? And third, why should we pray? Okay? Three very simple questions. For whom should we pray? What in the world do we pray for them? And why should we bother praying at all? So let's start with the first question, for whom should we pray? The answer, look at verse 1, is not hard to find. Supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings should be made for what? Two words, say it. All people. Right. For all people. And, and the point of Paul using four different words there, supplications, prayers, I mean, you just kind of like, okay, I'm not familiar with that, but seems to have something to do with talking to God. It does. You're right. But the point of that isn't to create some kind of sharp distinction. It's cumulative, okay? Or as, as Ray Van Ness says, it calls for all sorts of prayer for all sorts of people. Now, I want you to think about this with me, okay? If all people literally means every human being alive by name, that would be an impossible command to obey, right? We would start praying, we would never be done praying, and we would neglect all the other commands in the word of God that he tells us to also obey. The emphasis here, as I hope is self-evident, is more qualitative than quantitative for all you math people. (laughs) So Paul's talking about all kinds of people, all types of people, all categories of people. And the reason we know that's what he's after, not just what I'm saying to get us off the 8 billion prayer list hook, is that in the very next verse, he highlights a particular category of people we're going to talk about in a little bit. But, but the application of supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings for all people really needs to start with some humility on our part. We, we need to recognize how easy it is for our petitions, our requests, to extend no further than ourselves and our immediate family. You ever notice that? Is it wrong to pray for yourself or your immediate family? No. No. You're included in the what? The all people of verse 1. Okay? But until Jesus returns and makes all things new, friends, we have to be alert. We have to be on guard to the various ways that, that selfishness in our hearts can corrupt our prayers causing us to to limit our intercession, as it were, to what feels important to us instead of what God says matters to him. That's the point. And so we need to regularly ask ourselves, are there any significant categories of people missing in who we pray for over an extended period of time? Okay, both individually and corporately. For example, do we pray for non-Christian friends and neighbors who have heard about Jesus but have yet to choose to trust and obey him? Do we pray, do we intercede for non-Christians in other nations who've never even heard about Jesus? And for the missionaries we know that are faithfully serving and seeking to share Christ with them. Do we make supplication for Christians in other churches? in this city. Okay, asking that God would bless those congregations with unity and fruitfulness in ministry no less than our own. Okay, do we express thanksgiving for for signs, evidences of grace and spiritual growth in the lives of our fellow members? Or how about praying for leaders in our congregation or our denomination at large? Okay, my goal in giving you examples isn't to create some kind of exhaustive list 
here's a backpack where we have to hit every conceivable category with at least one mention in the course of every calendar year. That's not the goal. The goal is to practice, listen, a radical unselfishness in our prayers. That's the goal. Radical unselfishness that humbly considers others more important than ourselves. That's the goal. It's not about checking all the category boxes. It's about taking care that our prayers reflect a breadth, a fullness of all kinds of prayer for all kinds of people. And by the way, if I can get really practical for a moment, seeing as how we're starting a new year, that usually requires having some sort of, ready, plan. And I'm not trying to turn all of you into a bunch of type A people, okay? So in case you just thought that, stop it. (laughs) Most of us, if we're being honest, need some sort of structure, some sort of guidance, some sort of means, plan, approach, pick your word that doesn't make you think I'm trying to give you a new personality in order to consistently make supplication, intercession, thanksgivings for categories of people that really matter to God, but we could easily fail to recollect amidst all the craziness of real life. And so I I use an approach similar to the one Paul Miller outlines in a really, really good book you should check out in the bookshop called A Praying Life. And it serves me, more or less, though I vary this from time to time, to have a short list of people that I pray for every day And then a longer list of categories and kinds of people that I pray for on a rotating basis. But regardless of the strategy you choose, remember the goal. Okay, what's the goal? Look at verse 1. We want to avoid major gaps in the all people of verse 1 for whom we're called to pray. Case in point, look at verse 2. Kings and all who are in high positions. Now think with me for just a minute about who that actually meant in the middle of the first century. Who did that group include? It it was not, sorry to say, filled with democratically elected governing officials. It was filled with with Roman emperors like Nero, who we actually think wound up killing the man who wrote this letter, and included all kinds of corrupt political puppets like King Herod or King Agrippa, who made it their mission to manipulate and persecute and kill Christians. So why in the world would we pray for people like that. Why would we do that? What what would thanksgivings for Nero even sound like? Fathom that. Romans 13.1 helps us understand, friends, why prayer for governing authorities is so important. Listen to what Paul says there. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And a few verses later, Paul adds, For he is God's servant for your good. What's what's the point? Whether a governing official recognizes as much or not, they are God's servant. They've been charged by God to use the power he's entrusted to them for the good of others, not to advance their own selfish agendas or ambitions. So why should the people of God pray for a Roman emperor persecuting Christians or switching to our own context? I'm not drawing parallels, but let's be honest. A political figure that you didn't vote for and you can't stand. but they won the election anyway? Well, the answer is actually really simple. It's because God, in the mystery of his sovereign will, saw fit 
to establish them. That doesn't mean you have to agree with them or like them or support their actions. It does mean, look back at verse 2, according to verse 2, that that little word, all who are in high positions, doesn't come with a political party exemption clause. And so we need to pray prayers like this, friends. Lord, thank you. Thank you for our president. Thank you for making him in your image. Thank you for giving him unique gifts and abilities that reflect you whether he knows it or not. We don't know all the reasons you established him in office. At this point in our nation's history, we don't need to know that, Lord, in order to trust you with all he will do and will not do. We pray that you would grant him the humility and wisdom to rule in a manner that is pleasing to you protecting the weak and vulnerable and and bringing tangible expressions of your blessing to every corner of society. And by the way, we need to pray like that no matter who the president is, what party he represents, or whether you voted for him or not. And we're going to do that later today. Together. But, But let me seize this opportunity while I'm in a hitting difficult buttons kind of mood (laughs) to very specifically exhort and admonish you as we head into an election year. Give careful attention, friends, especially as November approaches to the way you speak about and relate to our governing officials whether they're elected or appointed. Because as as Christians, please hear this, our participation in the public square should be characterized by humble submission and fervent prayer. That doesn't mean those are the only ways we engage politically or entail some sort of passive citizenship, okay? To the contrary, what does the gospel do? It compels us to work and pray against moral evils like racism or abortion that fail to treat men and women, young and old, as image bearers of the living God that they are and for whom Jesus Christ shed his precious blood. And we need to courageously obey the word of the Lord to Israel. Jeremiah 29, 7, especially where principles of biblical justice are in play, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. So don't hear what I'm not saying there. This is not a call to passivity. Shut up and pray. No, I'm not saying that. I am saying something is terribly wrong when as Christians we are more known for attacking and decrying our political opponents than we are for praying for them. That's what I'm saying. That's how verse 2 gets in our face. So I urge you, friends, force yourself, please force yourself, to stop and pray for the candidate or public official that you are about to critique on social media before you start doing this. Some of us did well in 2016. Some of us did not. And I really want us to heed the word of the Lord to us in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, and be honest, if we, if we cannot think of what to pray for that person, or in our heart we're just unable to pray for that person, then humility would conclude that whatever I'm about to type is probably not a good representation of King Jesus. Does that make sense? Here's the principle. I want us to pray first and post second. Can you remember that? Do I need to make that a bumper sticker? Okay. Pray first, post second. Say it with me. Ready? Pray first, 
post second. And no, I have not paid people to track all of you on Facebook. Okay. Pray first, post second. We can do that. It should be what is distinctive about Christians. So for whom should we pray? We should pray for all kinds of people without exception, right? Verse 2, especially for kings and all those who are in high position because as George Knight observes, the lives of all people, including Christians, and their concern to proclaim the gospel and live a godly life are affected by civil authorities. Could we pray for all kinds of people, especially civil authorities? Okay, second question. What should we pray? That's who we pray for. What should we pray? Look back at the middle of verse 2. Think about this. What's the goal? Maybe another good way to say it. Of praying all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people. What's, What's the goal? That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. That that first part, look at that. Peaceful, quiet life. That describes what? The, The kind of freedom from turmoil, persecution, physical hardship that result, that come about, freedom from all those things, when civil authorities are ruling in a wise and just manner that enhances human flourishing. So we're praying for that. We're praying for that kind of context, proximate goal. And you know, neither Paul nor co-workers like Timothy nor the churches they established nor most Christians in church history have taken that for granted the way we do as Americans. I mean, how many times, right, was Paul forced to leave a city just ran out of town under threat of death for sharing his faith. How how many times do our brothers and sisters around the world, friends, gather for worship like this, wondering if the secret police are going to come running through that door suddenly and arrest everybody? That the freedom of worship that we enjoy in this country is not a historical commonplace. It's an exception. It's unusual. And we ought not take that for granted. And we need to pray for civil authorities in this country that would continue to protect our right to follow King Jesus and lead others to join us in doing the same. Amen? Okay, but please notice this. Look back at verse 2. A peaceful and quiet life, a stable civil context, is not the ultimate goal. It's a proximate goal. What's the ultimate goal? And praying for all people, especially kings and all who are in high positions. The ultimate goal of all kinds of prayer for all kinds of people is that they, along with us, might live a life that is what? Godly and dignified in every way. Think about what Paul doesn't say there. He doesn't say a convenient life, a microwavable life, an easy life. He says a godly life, a dignified life. Or as the NIV translates, living in all godliness and holiness. Dignity there has a strongly moral undertone. It's not just like, you know, a respectable person with a cane sitting on a chair. Dignity. No. It's moral dignity. So does that mean that it's wrong to pray for financial provision or physical health? No. No. Does that that mean it's wrong to pray for a new job? Or a passing grade or any other manner of physical needs? No, no, it does mean, hear this, we need to carefully examine the content of our prayers to see if what we're interceding for the most is what God cares about the most. Do you catch that? We need to evaluate is what we're praying for the most actually what God cares about the most? doesn't always go down that way. So be, be honest, friend. When was the last time you prayed for someone that they, or maybe even yourself, would become more like Jesus? Lord, heal so-and-so's great aunt. Be with them. Traveling mercies, hedges of protection. I, I'm not decrying all that. I am saying 
that verse 2 sets a higher priority. Make them more like Jesus. Make them like Jesus. There's something that matters more, friend, than a healthy body and material prosperity and freedom from suffering. 1 Timothy 4.8, for while bodily training, I wrote this at the top of my marathon training log, by the way, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Listen, godliness is the path to life. It's the path to life, enjoying a growing relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ, where we, through the power of the Spirit, progressively become more like Jesus. That is the secret to joy, friend. It's also the only path of deliverance on the final day of judgment. Because on that day, your 401k will not matter a lick. Your reputation in the eyes of men will not matter. Your athletic achievements, your sexual conquests, your travel experiences will not matter. Godliness alone will matter. Godliness alone will be rewarded. Likeness to Jesus and the the intimacy with God that comes with that is what you were made for, friend. So, does that mean that we will earn more of God's love by becoming more godly and dignified this year? No. No. It does mean that unless you turn from sin and follow Jesus and keep on doing that, you will not see the Lord. We need to pay attention, not not just to, to who we're praying for, but what we pray, because it's really easy for what we pray for to fall woefully short of what actually matters. Godliness. Not just for yourself, but, but for all people. It, it's what your spouse needs the most. It's what your children need the most. It's what your church needs the most. It's what your elected officials need the most. It's, it's what you need the most. Godliness, which is why Paul kind of talks, says time out at the beginning of verse 3. Look at that. This is good. <laughs> it's like, okay, just in case you didn't get the memo. That's what matters. This is good. And friend, if you want to know, let's get practical again, how to persevere in praying for godliness for all kinds of people with all kinds of prayers and not just say over and over again, Lord, please make so-and-so more like Jesus. Please make so-and-so more like Jesus. Please make so-and-so more like Jesus. More coffee. Repeat. (laughs) If you don't want to do that, I don't want to do that. Well, then take a few months at the beginning of 2020 and with help, uh, you can get D.A. Carson's book, what's the latest title? Praying with Paul, A Call to Spiritual Reformation. You can get help to go through and look at all the different prayers Paul prays in his letters. And you know what you'll find in all of them? They all have a son at the center, and it's godliness. He's praying for godliness in different ways, with different prayers for different kinds of people. So check out Carson's book. He does a great job kind of taking us by the hand and explaining how we can pray different kinds of prayers, but they're all after godliness. Let me just give you one example. We, we finished a series recently here at Kingsway called Living with the End in View. We worked through First and Second Thessalonians. And in Second Thessalonians 1, 11, Paul says this, listen, to this end, we always pray for you. That our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, confession, I've never woken up in the morning, rubbed the crusties out of my eyes and started talking like that. (laughs) If you have, let me know. I need help to learn how to pray. And so instead of praying the same old things in the same old way, try following Paul's lead. Be humble, right? Pray for your spouse, people in your community group, elected officials. Pray that God would make them what? Worthy of his calling. 
and fulfill every resolve for good by his power. Notice, that's a prayer for godliness, but it's not generic. It's specific. Faith rises. Faith to pray rises when we pray specific prayers for specific people in specific expressions of godliness. But I want you to notice, get ready to ask our third and final question here. Look back at 1 Timothy 2, verse 3, that when Paul says this is good, that's not just an assessment of godliness. That's also a description of the activity of praying for godliness. Do you catch that? It's not just good to be godly. It's good, it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior to make supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings for all people that all people might be more like him. So question three, why should we pray? We should pray because God desires to answer our request. That's the point. This is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. So just think about this for a minute, okay? Because sometimes we get these really twisted, mixed up ideas of prayer that are more like pagan, animistic concepts than the kind of Abba Father, Bruce was talking about that this morning, conversation with our Heavenly Dad that biblical prayer actually is. So, so listen, prayer, biblically, isn't about cajoling some kind of disgruntled deity to, you know, get out of the rocking chair and come over and lend us a hand. That's not what biblical prayer is like. Okay, biblical prayer is asking God to do what he has already said he desires to do, what he wants to do, think about that, and what he's going to be faithful to do because he desires it and wants it. That's amazing. So so what does God desire? Look at verse 4. What does he desire? What, What does he want? He desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. But that immediately, at least in my mind, raises all kinds of difficult questions. Maybe it does in yours. Because if verse 4 is in fact what God desires, then why in the world does the collective witness of Scripture, the entirety of church history, and I don't know, pretty much every Christian's experience alive today, (laughs) suggest that not all people are willing or ever choose to repent of their sins and trust in Jesus for salvation and be saved. What are you going to do with that? You can conclude God's lying. He doesn't really desire all people to be saved. You can conclude God's impotent. He, he would like all people to be saved. But honoring the freedom of human free will means he can't actually make that happen. It's not an abstract issue, okay? It's a deeply personal issue, especially if you have children who are not following the Lord. So let me just make a few orienting comments here. First, Listen very carefully. Okay, we need to understand that all people in verse 4 in the same way we understand all people in verse 1. So remember in verse 1, it didn't mean every single human being without exception. What did it mean? All kinds of people. Okay? Second, notice verse 4 does not say that all people being saved is the only thing God desires or is what God desires more than anything else? What what do passages like Romans 9 or Ephesians 1 remind us? They, They remind us that God's 
greatest desire, his, his ultimate ambition is for the exaltation of his glory. And by the way, lest you think, what a stuck-up, arrogant guy. I don't like that. That is exceedingly good for you. Exceedingly good. Why? Why is it exceedingly good that God's highest ambition, his greatest desire, is for the exaltation of his glory? Because there is nothing and no one more beautiful than him, friend. You want your soul to be satisfied, you better earnestly pray that God would glorify himself. Not you. (laughs) Himself. It's good for us. No one's more satisfying than him. And scripture tells us that God is glorified, listen, in his righteous acts of judgment, no less than in his righteous acts of mercy. We see that throughout the whole Bible. And finally, verse 4 assures us, please hear this, no one will fail to be saved from the wrath of God because they wanted to trust and obey Jesus so badly, and God said no. Sorry, but no. No, Scripture repeatedly identifies the great obstacle to our salvation is not an unwillingness in the heart of God, but an unwillingness in the heart of man. That's the obstacle. And if verses 4 and 5 teach us anything, they shout loud and clear of what? The universal invitation of the gospel and the complete sufficiency of Christ's work to redeem any man or woman who will bow their knee to King Jesus. That's what they scream. That's what they shout. God desires all people to be saved, verse 4. So what did he do? Look at verse 5. Christ Jesus, God the Son incarnate, laid down his life on the cross as a ransom for all. He paid the penalty of sin necessary for all who choose to trust him as their Savior. And so the point of verses 4 and 5 is not to leave us in some kind of theological quagmire or start all manner of debates on the extent of the atonement. They are designed to motivate us to what? To pray. Do you see that? Don't lift those verses out of context. They're there for a reason. They're meant to motivate us to pray. Why should we pray? Why should we pray? Remember, that's the question. We should pray for godliness because God himself desires to save all all kinds of people by opening their spiritual eyes and leading them in the knowledge of the truth. He desires that. He wants that. He's committed to that eternally. And so much so, not just like, oh, that's an idea. I take your word for it. We should take his word for it. But he's proved that by laying down his life for us on the cross as a ransom for all. He wants people to be saved. He wants people to become godly. And he's done all that is necessary to make it possible. The entire logic of this passage, you want me to summarize it in a sentence? Listen carefully. It's that we should pray the request in verses 2 and 3 for the people in verses 1 and 2 because of who God is in verse 4 and what God has done in verse 5. I'll stop. (laughs) But, But think about this. You know, why do we pray? You ever notice how often the impetus, the the driving force, the big engine for our prayers is nothing more than our own sense of felt need or our own perception of what we think spouse needs (laughs) or friend needs? I mean, is it bad to pray for felt needs? No. No, but, but please hear this. The needs that we feel and perceive are not inherently or even consistently true and right and holy. Why? Because of our sin. They're corrupted like every other part of that. Us. Your needs are not the one immunity in your heart, your felt needs, to our doctrine of sin. In other words, we, we, this is not the gospel. I have holy and pure needs and I finally find in Jesus someone who's willing to faithfully meet all of them. That's not the gospel. The gospel is every part of us is riddled with sin, including our sense of all our felt needs. What we actually need and want is a mess. And yet God in his mercy laid down his life so that we could be forgiven for all of that, including all our disordered self-perceptions and other people perceptions. 
and find forgiveness and cleansing and be made entirely new, including reoriented to what we really need. A church that finds life and joy in prayer is a church that prays in accordance with the revealed will of God, not just their sense of felt need, and keeps on praying in accordance with what God says he is, verse 4, and what God has already done, verse 5. What has God said he is in verse 4? A God who desires all people to be saved. So what has God done in verse 5 to prove as much? He's given himself up as a ransom for all. So think of it this way. It's the word of God, his self-disclosure, and the saving work of God made known through the word of God that ultimately compel us to pray. So the great engine behind biblical prayer is not ultimately our sense of felt need or our perception of other people's needs. It's the revealed will of God for all people, including us. And I think if you want some practical help in doing this, or think, what in the world are you talking about? I think it's kind of new, but I'm not sure I get it all. Go check out Tim Keller's book on prayer. This is the final shout out I'm going to give this morning. But I recommend Keller's book because he does a great way explain. He has a great way of explaining how meditation on the Word of God, translation, reading and thinking about your Bible. <laughs> actually enables us to pray for what God has already said he wants and he's committed to bring to pass so that we can persevere in that and know he's categorically eager to do what we're asking him to do. That will sustain prayer. Check out Keller's book. You know, every year, typically the beginning of the year, we dedicate one of our corporate prayer meetings on a Sunday night to praying for friends and family members who have yet to come to the knowledge of the truth about Jesus. And if you look at verse 5, 1 Timothy 2, Paul tells us here why we should do that and why next Sunday evening, I'm excited we're going to gather and pray for the salvation of men and women in our midst who are wrestling with Christianity and for growth and godliness in the lives of men and women in our midst who've recently decided to follow Christ. Why why are we going to do those things? Look at verse 5 and 6. We pray for salvation and growth and godliness because there is only one God. There are not multiple gods. No one else offers abundant life and joy. We pray for salvation, growth, and godliness because there's only one mediator between God and man. The man Christ Jesus. There there are not multiple paths to God. Either we come to him through repentance of sin and faith in Christ, or we don't come at all. And we pray because Jesus' death on the cross is wholly sufficient to redeem us from the guilt of our sin and set us free to serve the Lord. He paid it all. And so we fight for godliness, not to earn our salvation, but because Jesus has already secured our salvation. And we pray Because all I've just said, the truth of the gospel in verses 5 and 6, isn't the invention of man. It's what? The authoritative testimony of God given at the proper time. So if you want to know why we pray, ultimately, it's because of who God is and what God's done for us in Jesus. That's why we pray. Who do we pray for? All kinds of people, especially governing authorities. What do we pray? That we would all lead a peaceful and quiet life, and especially that in that context, all of us could grow in godliness. And we pray not ultimately because of the needs we feel or perceive, but because of what God has said and done. Put all that together, it's the pleasure of God in working salvation for all people that compels us to pray for all people. That's the point of these verses. So Kingsway, I challenge you to make 2020 a year where you are devoted to prayer. Where you're devoted to prayer, especially to corporate prayer. By the way, corporate prayer is not flashy. It's not original. It doesn't tend to draw big crowds. But, but, but honestly, 
nor do most of the things that matter most in the course of a hundred years of a church's life. A faithful congregation doesn't flit from one new initiative to another. A faithful congregation that bears fruit a century from now remains committed to a small handful of really important public means of grace and priorities that God has given us in his word and refuses to stop. I want us to be that kind of church. I don't want us to bounce from new initiative to new initiative. I want us to be faithful to a handful of simple, essential things. First batter up, faithful to pray. Let's do that. Lord Jesus, you're so kind. You're so, so, so kind to bring us back to what you know matters. Matters when we're alone with you. Matters when we're gathered as your people in a context like this. And so we pray right now, Lord, you would help us to be a church that is devoted in the upcoming year to the practice of corporate prayer, especially prayer of intercession. I pray that we would not ever take that for granted, think that's perfunctory, treat it as a flyby, transition device, yada, yada, I don't remember anything. I remember the sermon, I don't know what we prayed about. Lord, guard us from that. Make us faithful to pray. And I I ask, Father, as we, after singing this song, we, we take some time in small groups to do that right now in this place and pray especially for different needs that are tied to governing authorities. I ask, Lord, that you would stir up faith that comes from knowing what we're asking you to do, the salvation, the growth in godliness, peaceful and quiet life. It's what you've already said is good. And furthermore, it's what you desire. Thank you that we can pray confidently this year knowing what you desire. Help us to ask you to do what you've already promised to do in so doing that our will might be aligned to yours. We pray in your name. Amen.